Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. I said my name weird. I just assumed that all oh, this was like pre-recorded and you didn't do it like every time. Oh, every time. Oh, no, it's oh. live every time. <laughs> it's live, baby. It's live. Woo! Mike, do you want to introduce yourself again? Sure. <laughs> and I'm your boyfriend now, Mike Sooner. Ooh, nice. <laughs> and we are joined by a special guest today. She is a writer and assistant editor of Ghouls Magazine, Rebecca McCallum. Rebecca, welcome. Hi, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Thanks for hopping on. Yes, thank you. Uh, So this is a comfort horror episode, and we define comfort horror as the scary movies that bring us joy. And I'm so excited to talk about today's movie. Rebecca, what movie are we talking about today? So today we're talking about the classic 1984, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, bitch. Sorry. Second, I thought you were going to say the 2010 A Nightmare on Elm Street. No, I would quit the podcast immediately. That's it. It's been a good run. It's been a good run. Just like sauntering out after hanging my hat up. But before we do, we're going to give a brief synopsis of the film in case for some reason you haven't seen that. And you know, there are a lot of big movies I haven't seen. So if you haven't seen A Nightmare on Elm Street, that's okay. But just go see it. Yeah, watch it it now. Don't rely on our synopsis. I mean, (laughs) right. But if it's been a while, uh, here is what happens. We'll spoil it for you. And I (laughs) didn't write this thing out, which is why I'm like clunking all over the place. So, um, spoilers. The spoiler comes to you in a dream. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll kick this off. We open on a shadowy figure making knife gloves. Meanwhile, teenage Tina is being pursued by someone unseen through a creepy boiler room. She awakens. It was just a bad dream. The next day at school, we meet Tina's friends, Nancy and her boyfriend, Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) They console Tina. In fact, she's so disturbed by her dreams that her pals stay at her house that night to keep her company. While hanging out at Tina's, they hear a noise outside. Jump scare! It's Rod. (laughs) He came to make up with Tina after a fight and presumably button his shirt at some point. He doesn't get along with everyone else. He's a bad, bad boy. (laughs) Tina and Rod have extremely loud sex while everyone else is trying to sleep, alone, because Nancy and Glenn are a good little girl and boy. (laughs) Tina is here for Tina tonight, not themselves. Yes, yes. They're here for Tina and to listen to her have sex. Yes. Tina is awoken in the middle of the night by a very aggressive man in a red and green striped sweater with burn scars on his face and knives on his fingers. He chases her through the yard, seemingly bending space and time, refusing to play by the laws of reality. He catches Tina, 
Oh, no. Rod wakes up to find Tina next to him in bed, being attacked by someone invisible. She is flung around the room and across the ceiling as bloody slashes appear on her chest. Awakened by Tina's screams, Nancy and Glenn rush to her room. They find Tina's dead body, but Rod is gone. Enter Dreamboat Dad, a.k.a. Lieutenant Daddy, Nancy's father, a police detective. <laughs> I will always call him Lieutenant Daddy. I know, I forgot about that. <laughs> <sighs> They're down at the station talking to Nancy and his ex-wife, Nancy's mom, about what the fuck happened. Nancy goes to school, even though she didn't sleep, and discovered her best friend's dead body the night before. On her way there, Rod jumps out of the bushes, sweaty and disheveled. He tries to talk to Nancy, but apparently her dad has been using her as Rod bait. The cops arrest Rod. Back at school, Nancy is in English class, where Lynn Shea is teaching the class Hamlet, which just happens to reflect the themes of the film. <laughs> Love when that happens. Just, I know. It's like it's class con- class position. I'm, try- I'm trying to make that word work. Yeah. It's never it's math class. It's always right. like literature. Yeah, this right angle represents the killer's motivations. It just doesn't quite work. It's a geometric chart that looks like like knife fingers. Right. That would be cool. All right, carry on. Nancy drifts off to my favorite moment in the movie, a classmate reciting some on-the-nose Shakespeare. Oh, God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space. Or not that I have bad dreams. A dreaming Nancy sees Tina's corpse in a bloody body bag that gets dragged down the hall. She follows the trail of blood, encountering a hall monitor in a red and green striped sweater, who I have definitely not dressed up as for Halloween twice. <laughs> she demands a hall pass from Nancy, but we begin to learn that Nancy don't take no shit, yelling, screw your pass! Screw your pass! <laughs> Nancy finds herself in the creepy boiler room, chased by the knife-fingered mystery man. Realizing she's dreaming, she slams her arm against a hissing pipe. She wakes up screaming in class and realizes that there's a burn mark on her arm from the dream. Ah. (laughs) She goes to Rod in jail to find out what happened when Tina died. He tells her about Tina's dreams and his dreams, which all feature the same knife-fingered weirdo. Back at home, Nancy falls asleep in the bathtub. In an iconic moment, the knife-fingered hand emerges from the water between her legs. The hand drags her under the water until, fighting for survival, she wakes up. This is when Nancy realizes she needs to stay awake to survive and begins mainlining coffee because apparently this is the only suburb in the 1980s where you can't find Coke. (laughs) Glenn sneaks in through Nancy's bedroom window. He's concerned about her, but also doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. She asks him to stand guard while she sleeps and goes to look for someone. She emphasizes how important it is that he not screw up. Spoiler. He immediately screws up. (laughs) In a dream, Nancy goes walking after midnight, looking for her dream man. She goes to visit Glenn in jail and watches old knife fingers murder him in his cell. She begs Glenn to wake her up, but he's asleep too. She runs back to her house through dream logic and gets attacked as Glenn sleeps in the corner. Luckily, the alarm clock wakes her up. Nancy and Glenn go to visit Rod. They try to convince the cops that what they've seen is real. But before they can get to him, the dream man kills Rod by hanging him with his bedsheets. Naturally, the cops believe he killed himself. Nancy's mom takes her to a sleep clinic. She falls asleep, but is attacked again. This time, she emerges with a filthy fedora clutched in her hand. The name Fred Krueger is written inside. 
Nancy realizes she's in some deep shit and starts checking out survival books from the Ted Kaczynski Memorial Library. <laughs> Nancy and Glenn share a tender moment on a bridge wherein Glenn drops some surprising wisdom about Balinese dream skills and how turning your back on your demons strips them of power. Back on Elm Street, Nancy's mom has put bars on all the windows. Too bad the dreams are coming from inside the house. <laughs> Her mom is finally ready to reveal her secret. She takes Nancy to the basement and shows her a memento, a knife-fingered glove that once belonged to a child murderer named Fred Krueger. After Fred was acquitted on a technicality, the neighborhood parents, including Nancy's mom and dad, burned him to death in his boiler room. Looks like Freddy is probably some kind of omnipotent dream ghost hell-bent on revenge as a result. Oops. <laughs> Glenn is in bed wearing a crop top with a full television set resting on his crotch. <laughs> It's true. Watch the movie if you don't true. believe me. It's true. Nancy calls and tells him he might be next. But don't worry. She understands the rules now and is going to bring Freddy out of the dream and into physical reality. All she needs is for Glenn to wake her up at the opportune moment. Glenn. Glenn. God damn it, Glenn. Mm -hmm. Despite being specifically asked for the second time not to fall asleep, Glenn falls asleep. Fucking Glenn. Uh, I don't care how hot your crop top is. <laughs> John Depp before he got weird. Yep. Uh, okay. <laughs> Nancy tries to call him, but is thwarted by his disapproving mother and tongue phone. Glenn's disapproving dad takes the phone off the hook, effectively but unintentionally sealing his son's fate. And it's a hell of a fate. Glenn gets sucked into his bed like it's a pit of quicksand, then spewed back out in a fountain of blood. It's a regular Glenn smoothie. <sighs> yum 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 <laughs> yum 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 Nancy's mom is drunk and won't let her out of the house she watches helplessly through barred windows as cops arrive at Glenn's house and she knows in her bones that her boyfriend is dead Nancy tells her dad who is across the street at Glenn's that she's going to get Freddy she wants him to break the door down in precisely 20 minutes she builds some pretty intricate traps in those 20 minutes then goes to sleep <laughs> Kevin McAllister is taking notes. I, I literally have a line in here about Home Alone. <laughs> I watched this with some friends. Okay, I'll save that. I'll save that. Okay. In Dreamland, she finds Freddy in his boiler room, drawing him out into her house. She wakes up in her own bed as her alarm goes off. Freddy has followed her. He's now in her world and about to get home alone like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> After a series of struggles, Nancy lights Freddy on fire and traps him in her basement. Dad finally shows up to help Nancy. They see fiery footprints leading to her mother's room. There, they find a burning Freddy on top of her mother, killing her. Her burned body sinks into the bed. In this terrible moment, Nancy is resolute. She tells Freddy that she takes back every bit of power she gave him with her fear. She's not afraid of him anymore. She turns her back on him, and it's his Achilles heel. When he lunges at her, he evaporates. Nancy opens the door to a bright, 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 sunshiny day. Her mother is back, and so are all her friends. Oh, yeah, and mom is going to stop drinking. Yay, everything is perfect, so perfect, but not so fast. As Nancy hops into Glenn's convertible, a striped top unfurls, and they're locked inside. Nancy's mom is grabbed by a knifed hand and pulled violently into the house. Turns out Freddy wins after all. Cue the nursery rhyme. And that's a nightmare on Elm Street. Freddy's coming for you. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop. I'll stop. 
Yeah, I wonder how far I could get. How much? How much of that do I know? I know well, all of it. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh yeah, I guess never sleep again. Yeah, it's really not that many numbers. It's, yeah, is yeah. It? <laughs> I should have just trusted myself. It's always like five, six. <laughs> grab your crucifix is always very funny to me because there's like not really any religious themes per se in it. Right. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, there's no evidence that that would have stopped him. In right. fact, he like, took I a crucifix as a trophy, to, right? right? Not a vampire. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were just like, what rhymes with six? Shit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's it's a hard rhyme, you mm-hmm. know. So now let's do a feelings check. And this is where we share our first experience with A Nightmare on Elm Street and how we feel when we watch it. And Rebecca, I know that you love this movie and I cannot wait to hear about your experiences with it. Thanks, Jen. So, um, my first experience with the franchise was um, seeing A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors, when I was about eight or nine at a sleepover, um, which gave me some like lifelong scars, I can tell you, whenever anyone <laughs> yeah, whenever anyone asks sort of those, what are those early memories, like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 is definitely, I think it's the character of Joey sort of walking in the corridor with like his arms ripped open, like mm, that yes. terrified me. We have to turn that film off and watch the Spice Girls movie. (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of this film, so I came to horror sort of in my late teens. So I was around 16 or 17 and I was ticking off, you know, that sort of period where you sort of, you just come into all the, you know, the, the famous ones and you're ticking them off and it's just so exciting and that's how I came to this film and I was sort of just watching it on my own in my room with my little box tv that didn't even have a remote you had to like to change the channel you had to press like buttons on the actual tv mm-hmm. so I remember that experience being like really immersive it sort of just pulled me in like straight away mm-hmm. There's something like world building about it and it also like it genuinely scared me as well I remember that quite clearly and even after all this time now, like it remains in my top five horrors. And like I attribute my love of it to a few things. So first, like I think because I come to it in those sort of formative years. So it's like I find that my favorite horrors tend to be those sort of ones that I experienced early on and mm. that stay with me. I also feel like the teenagers in this film feel like teenagers, you know, they they mm-hmm. feel the age they are, like so often you know you have 20 somethings playing teens and it just doesn't gel for me but yeah I really believe that you know the teens are the age they are the concept as well like the concept is just so simple and beautiful like I really love that and and then of course there's Nancy as well um (laughs) which we'll talk about later I guess in terms of how it makes me feel so when the score like kicks in just the first like notes I'm just like ready to surrender to it like I just I'm just ready and it's like no matter how many times I watch it the experience never changes it's like you know when you can watch horror and you know films can diminish or you can start to see flaws and of course it's not it's not a flawless film there are flaws in it I do recognize that but like it, my passion for it just never diminishes over time Um, it just keeps on growing and growing if anything and like mm-hmm. there's things that I see more as I get older sort of like Particularly, particularly the character of like Marge and their relationship with Nancy like as I've gotten mm-hmm. older like I've really you know been drawn towards exploring that mm-hmm. the aesthetic as well is a big pull for me like 
this, I'm a child of the 80s, so it feels mm-hmm. comforting to me. And it's like, preferably, I like to watch this on VHS. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Because <laughs> it's like, to me, that's just the ultimate experience. Like, So it just enhances the nostalgia for me even more, I think. I think like, you know, although I know the outcome, like every time I take the film at complete face value, I feel like I'm watching it in a state of like purity, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And also like it's very cathartic for me. So like I'm someone that struggles with anxiety like on a daily basis mm-hmm. and watching Nancy go through danger like time and time again and like coming through for herself. Mm-hmm particularly coming through for herself like that has helped me way through my own anxieties mm-hmm. and you know the things that happen to her are like a stand-in I see them as a stand-in for some of my own experiences with mental health mm-hmm. absolutely Mike what about you yeah so I arrived at the Elm Street franchise through the second movie Freddy's Revenge like it came on we were in my friend's basement like they had like a giant romper room where just everybody hung out and i would have been elementary school age it would have been like probably the first time first year it was on like cable uh like hbo or showtime or one of those and i remember like watching it in like from behind the sofa because it was absolutely terrifying and then just immediately being like this is the greatest thing i've ever seen and then finding the series that way and i grew up in the height of Freddy mania. So, you know, he was on lunch boxes. He was on pillowcases. He had, I actually got in a lot of trouble as a kid because he had a 900 number. And when I slept over <laughs> my grandmother's house, I dialed the number uh, repeatedly, not just once to hear one story, but probably 30 or 40 times. Oh, no. Like Lisa <laughs> dialing the Corey hotline. You absolutely yes. are Lisa dialing the Corey hotline. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Totally was that. So I got in a lot of trouble ringing up like a $200 phone bill on my very elderly grandmother's phone and trying to blame it on her. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I went as like Freddie for like sixth grade. I did my own makeup and made my own glove and... If like you have those photos, you got I, so oh, yeah. I will have to look. <laughs> They're probably in a photo album in my mom's attic somewhere. Mm-hmm. My mom was like, you're very ugly children. We didn't like to take pictures. So <laughs> oh, Jesus, not, mom. She did, that. she did not do that. Um, wow. Throwing your grandma under the bus, throwing your mom under the bus. Sunday <laughs> morning, baby. Sunday morning. So I, I loved, loved Freddie. I'll say this, like, it's my favorite franchise to this day. I think it's still the most important franchise of the 80s. Because I think people forget, like, by 83, the slasher boom had kind of petered itself out. So, you know, Wes Craven comes along in 84 and he gives the horror genre this massive jolt in the arm, just like he would in 96 with Scream. Uh, And in the late, early 70s, he helped define what exploitation fare was going to look like with Last House on the Left. So you have someone with three separate decades really kind of putting like the stamp on what horror is going to look like. If A Nightmare in Elm Street doesn't come out and it's not a hit, you don't get 12 Friday the 13th movies. You don't Mm -hmm. get, I think Halloween would be dead and buried at that point. I think it's like the success of the first couple Elm Streets, which rejuvenates the interest in doing more 
Friday the 13th movies, reviving Michael Myers with Halloween for the return of Michael Myers. It really is to me the most important series of the 80s. And I, I think that if this movie doesn't hit like it does, a lot of the movies that come from like 85 onward that we know and love probably never get greenlit at that mm-hmm. point because horror was in a lull by 1983. And the other thing I'll just say before moving on, is I think what makes Freddy so iconic is that Bob Shea and New Line Cinema always felt a tremendous amount of respect for the character and a care for the character that they were, like you don't have like, oh, Freddy in space. And by the time it started to get a little bit ridiculous, they're like, okay, it's time to kind of move on from this so we don't get, um, silly with it. There was always like a tremendous amount of thanks for like uh, Elm Street putting New Line Cinema on the map and then it eventually becoming, you know, one of the real powerhouses for a time of, and to this day, it's like the home of the Conjuring franchise. So to this day, it continues. And I think Bob Shea still stewards it. It continues to be the the real, you know, a real player in the in the film industry. Mm-hmm. The house that Freddie built. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Laura, what about you? So I have a very similar history with this movie to Rebecca. Um, so I feel like you articulated a lot of the things I wanted, you know, I, I would typically say about this movie. So, you know, it's it's just fun to hear it impacting someone in a similar way. Um, I also was kind of a semi-late comer to the horror genre in that I was a very anxious child that couldn't handle scary movies, but at the same time, I was always attracted to them. And I believe in like our inaugural episode of this podcast, I talk about that extensively, like my history with horror and finding Mm -hmm. like uh, being attracted and repelled at the same time. And I would say that this was, I was doing a similar thing where I started to flirt with the idea of watching horror movies and was going through a list of which ones I should watch. And, uh, you know, had to like work up the courage to watch this one because Freddy Krueger as a character was very well known to me, despite having never seen any of the movies, you know, just like Mike pointed out, he was sort of this pop culture figure. And my mom always would be like, Oh, those Freddy Krueger movies, they're so violent and horrible. And like, you know, and I just had this idea in my head of just how threatening the films were. I didn't really know what to to expect except so one day when I was probably like 18 or 19 something along those lines like again as per usual I can't remember exactly when it was <laughs> but I queued this up I watched it had the exact same experience of just being completely sucked in like Glenn into the bed you know I was just like the score there's something mystical about this movie that really appeals to me. Whereas like I, I have come to appreciate a lot of slasher films, but it's definitely not the like subgenre of horror that I was naturally attracted to. I'm more naturally attracted to like witches and demons and spooky kind of stuff. And so this, you know, is just a very simple, but very unusual entree into the slasher genre. You know, it's like, it's just that simplicity of that idea and Wes Craven just doing what he does. Like the idea of like your dreams, like you, when you die in your dreams, you die in real life, like, and something from your dreams just unrelentingly haunting you is just such a beautiful, fun concept. And there's just so much that is packed into this as like, it almost is like a a true modern day fairy tale. Uh, And I love it. And I just like, I have the same thing. This is like probably my number one comfort horror movie that I can throw on. 
I, if I ever learn somebody I know hasn't seen it, I'm like, we're watching it. <laughs> I watched it with some friends over last Halloween via Zoom because, you know, it was like the quarantine Halloween. So I did like a lineup of three horror movies that I, uh, that I made my friends watch. It actually was on Discord. And I was just so fun, like listening to people reacting to it for the first time. And like, as mm-hmm. at the point when Nancy starts setting all the traps, like I just, my friends were all like, holy shit, she's kicking his ass. And like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, I know it's great. And like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's just such a, it's like, it's just so fun. I love this, everything about it. I love it so much. I could talk about it for days. Mm-hmm. And I did on Halloweenies podcast. <laughs> so you're going to hear a lot of my same thoughts here, but forgive me. I just, I love it so much. Yeah. Have you seen it at the cinema, Laura? I've never actually seen it in the cinema and I would love to. That would be, I would like, oh, like there's a place here in Chicago called the Music Box and it would be a dream. <laughs> no pun intended to see it there with the crowd. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> we catch that. <laughs> have you seen it? Have, have you seen it in the cinema? I've seen it in this. Yeah, it was same. Um, so in the last lockdown, sort of on Halloween, they were sort of screening lots of old horror films at our local cinema, and we we went to see it. And I was like, shh, to everyone, all the teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> I was no. I like, I just like was like, oh, this is just like I felt like honestly, seventeen years old again. Mm-hmm. Like I mm-hmm. really did. Like it was Aww. just joyous. Mm-hmm. It really was. I could have cried. But it's like, it was interesting hearing you talk, Laura, about like being young and anxious, but then flirting with horror. Because mm-hmm. like, I've been, I've been doing like, when I can, sort of an exercise of like trying to trace back my interest in horror and where it, like the origins, where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you can see behind me, but like the Wizard of Oz, like it, it, I've got a canvas painting behind me, but mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz is like probably my favourite film. And it's like, I was obsessed with it as a, as a kid. And there's obviously like elements of horror in that. So it's totally. like, I think you can see like the, the sort of, I don't know, like almost the the emergence of an interest. Mm-hmm. And like, I've always lo- loved like Shakespeare's tragedies and the Greek tragedies and that, you know, there's like elements of horror in those as well. Totally. So just, there's ghosts yeah. and goblins and witches and yeah, it's mm-hmm. all that stuff, you know, and it gets its hooks in you when you're young and I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember the first time I watched this one either, but I think the first one I watched in this franchise was uh, New Nightmare, which is still my favorite of the franchise. I love, love it. It's interesting one to see first. Yeah, so I had this weird, so kind of my relationship to the slasher franchises, um, like I have been drawn to horror from like, since I remember liking stories and kind of like you said, like I, I would find the elements of like non horrific things and like be really interested in like the book and the Care Bears movie, like scared the shit out of me, Um, (laughs) even though that's not like horror at all. Um, But I came to slashers pretty late. Um, And I don't think it was until after Scream that I really watched any of them. Like I knew that um, it's like the killers were so built up that they terrified me. And I was like, this is going to be too scary for me. I don't think I can, I want to do this. And then I watched Scream and I was like, oh shit, this is awesome. Um, And I don't remember when New Nightmare came out in relation to that, but I remember, I think I remember renting it and I would watch franchises. I would enter them in this really weird way. Like I would watch the most recent entry before I would watch anything else. Cause I was like, well, it's gotta be the best. It's the newest, right? You know, (laughs) I've since learned that that does not always hold up. Um, 
But so like H2O was my first Halloween movie. And like this one, um, I don't remember my first Friday the 13th one, but uh, New Nightmare was my favorite. And then I would go back and watch the originals. And then I would kind of avoid the sequels in the middle because I was like, yeah, they're probably not going to be that good. That's like the ones when they start to have numbers after them. It's like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> and so it wasn't until like after Scream and after like once I started to really kind of analyze horror that I started kind of diving into these and finding them really, really impactful to me I love franchises or I, I love slashers they're probably like one of my top favorite subgenres. more so because I love the final girls when I start ranking the like the big four franchises scream is like far and away at the top for me like I just absolutely love it partly because of I was the age of Sydney when that came out but um I like Freddy is not my favorite killer. I think I find him too wisecracking for most of the franchise, but I love him in this one because he's so restrained and he is actually scary here. You know, like I was watching it last night and I just kept kept being shocked by how menacing he appears, even in his more like goofy elements, you know. And I love Nancy. I find her final moments like really, really empowering. Not the final ones. Um, the final moments where she's not in that that weird dream outtake thing. And I have since kind of evolved my take on the I take back every bit of power I give you. Like I kind of have just in the last couple of years been thinking about that a little more than I had before. I still find it extremely empowering, but I think... I don't know. We'll talk about that later in the episode, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I, I love this movie. It's very creative. It's it's funny to watch it still kind of play by the slasher formula rules that I love, but do its own thing and do it in creative ways, you know? And I mean, I, I recognize that I say that as like, this is a film that helped establish some of those rules too. So it's like, it's forming it, but kind of going in its own way. And I just love Cra Wes Craven. He's probably my favorite horror director. So those are all my thoughts. And I'm looking forward to kind of diving into them and kind of, you know, or getting sucked down into the bathtub pool of what we think about this movie. So let's do that now. Um, and maybe we can start with talking about Nancy. Um, and Rebecca, I know you have some thoughts about Nancy and what she means to you. And I would love to, to hear them. Yeah, so Nancy's my favorite final girl. I've always felt on fire for Nancy, and like actually doing this, like I when I watch the film, you know, it's an enjoyable experience, and it, obviously it has its impact on me. But mm -hmm. actually coming onto the choosing the film and coming onto this this podcast really made me like I sat back and thought about it in a way I hadn't done before. So it's really interesting because I hadn't mm -hmm. actually sort of consolidated all my thoughts and thought about you know why and the you know the, the details about you know why I'm so connected to her I mm. think you know Nancy's really resourceful like we see her do things like you know when she burns her arm to come out the dream when she gets Glenn to watch her um set on the stopwatch those sort of things like she's really resourceful and forward thinking um I also think like she's highly normalized so to me like what makes her iconic is their relatability yeah like mm -hmm. she's so grounded and like I recognize a lot of myself in her I also think she's incredibly brave I mean she goes looking for Freddy like mm -hmm. you know she she stalks him in the end you know he's not stalking her mm -hmm. and you know when she's in the dream clinic she's like yes let's do this you know she's like she's up for it and like she's determined mm -hmm. on another note like I feel like Nancy's journey in the film is like about becoming an adult and like 
depending on yourself and knowing that like at, at heart your most ultimate precious resource is yourself at the end of mm-hmm. the day mm-hmm. and, and I find that something really affirmative in that like I might be feeling a bit shitty and then I'll watch Nancy and I'll feel like no like I have got resources that I can draw upon mm-hmm. you know Nancy's let down by so many people as well and she keeps on going and mm-hmm. like I feel like she's like arriving at an age where <clears throat> you know like her innocence like the facade of innocence is gone from her life um mm-hmm. and you know you know she's finding out that like there's a darker side to humanity and like your parents aren't perfect people they're human mm-hmm. people in authority like police you know they're not perfect people either they're human and they make mistakes Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like I love Nancy's willingness to confront situations. It's like when she brings the hat out and she says to her mum, "Like, feel it, mum. It's real." You know, mm-hmm. this is like I see that as really like indicative of this is like Nancy confronts reality, whereas I feel like her mum sort of turns away from reality and you know buries herself into you know sadly like her addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like Nancy's told by people like repeatedly like you're imagining things it's in your head you know what your experiences are are not real mm-hmm. and you know that's something I can relate to deeply through my own anxiety and like the attitude that sadly is still imbibed in in culture of like it's all in your head or you know particularly in the UK I don't, I don't know so much there but there's definitely an attitude of like just get on with it like just pull mm-hmm. your socks off get on with it you know so I really relate to that yeah like Mm -hmm. yeah I think there's a change in that isn't there like she goes from being sort of relaxed and carefree and then like at the end she's determined and like there's a fire in her that you know there's Mm -hmm. a fire in her eyes and it's like just echo what Jen said before actually about when she says that line you know I take back every bit of energy to me like my takeaway from it is like I I listen to that and go well this empowers me to turn away from my own anxieties and like you know plug into the positive energy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's like about the narr- like I, I know on this show we've talked a lot about the idea of like narrative therapy mm-hmm. and sort of letting yourself control the own narrative in your head and not be controlled by the narrative and I felt like that was like always a to me too a very powerful moment uh, of of that like saying like I don't have to give into this I can tap into my internal strength and fight back my own my own demons and uh, I, I always hate I mean it's a, it's a fun little horror film ending that they put on the on at the end but I hate how much it takes away from that moment and giving Nancy that that power and I know it was uh something that was done a decision made by Bob Shea in the studio to say like we can't have Freddie die at the end of this we have to leave the door open for the franchise you know mm-hmm. and I know that I, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly like Wes Craven fought that decision but they decided ultimately to put that you know that gag ending on the film and I just Mm -hmm. it it always to me I'm just like no like that was like Wes Craven really wrote the perfect ending with Nancy turning her back on Freddie and and, you know and it goes into what Glenn was saying on the bridge about the Balinese dream skills and there I don't know there's just something about that idea that I find so enchanting and Mm -hmm. having it ruined (laughs) by that studio ending like always kind of breaks my heart a little bit yeah, I I agree. And I think like for what the film as a whole means, I do. I think it probably would be a stronger film if that wasn't there. I kind of 
like the ending now because I read it, and this is my own personal read. I do not think this was intended, but I read it as like the dream she'll probably have the next night of like everything is fine now, but no, there's like they're all still gone, you know, um, and kind of like the lingering effects of trauma because this is like a big trauma that she's been through and she's lost like most of the people in her life that really mm-hmm. um, that we see her interact with, you know. Um, but yeah, I agree. It does kind of cut the cut the heart out of that message a little bit, especially coming right on the heels of that. Like she says she has this really big empowering moment and then she opens the door and it's immediately like taken away, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like if there was a little more space, you know, because I don't completely hate it, but I agree. I think it kind of cuts the heart out of it. Well, I know Robert Englund is always he's had the interpretation that everything that you see on screen in a nightmare in Elm street is a precognitive dream by Nancy. Like the nothing you see on the screen has actually happened yet. It's Nancy dreaming about the events before they actually go down. Like that's how he's chosen to interpret the ending of the movie. I, in my own take on the last like 30 seconds of every horror movie is that it's a marketing push and they don't actually exist in Canon. Yeah. Like I yeah. do a lot of that. Um, because you're yeah. right, because most horror movies end with like the heroes have vanquished the villain and then, but no, the you know, like Sinister Two, I think, was the one that really stood mm-hmm. out to me at the end of the movie where like Mr. Boogity comes back for like one more jump scare uh at mm-hmm. the end of the movie. And it's kind of like I just interpret that as like a little stinger and send the audience home happy but it's not actually like you know canon in the movie mm-hmm. you know because at that point you know how would nancy come back for part three if right right i've always wondered about that just in terms of like linear narrative and with a film franchise like this that traffics and dreams mm-hmm. and unreality it's really hard to say where that line is between reality and dreams which is mm-hmm. kind of also the 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 ongoing theme, you know, and the, and the more meta theme of it is that you have no control and there's this whole world that you, you just have no control over. That is yeah. your dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Which I kind of like, because I don't, I don't want to say, I don't like the thought of not having control, but I like the thought of like, it is a continual struggle, you know? And like, I don't vanquish this thing one time and then it's over. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is, I'm going to go to sleep the next night and I'm probably going to have a dream the next night and maybe Freddie won't be in it, but maybe it'll still be a scary dream. And I, I do kind of like, um, that and I also love that we see um like she and Laurie show up later on in their franchises and then of course Sydney as we've talked about at length. But I just love that we get to see them kind of um reckoning and what what has happened in their lives because of these traumatic things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you know, not that I would suggest doing a remake of this movie again, although it has <laughs> been 10 years now, so we're 10, 11 years now. Yeah. So, you know, we're about due. Um, but I've had like five Spider-Mans. Right. You know, we've had, yeah, exactly. How many different iterations of a thing can you have? But I, I would like to see a take on this potentially that explores that theme more in depth that, because I think that really is a theme of this film that, you know, how much control you do or don't have, how much will you can exert over the ineffable, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I and I, I just think that there's something really interesting to that. And especially in all the reading I'm doing about trauma, I really do think there's something there's something there, but I can't put my finger on it. I just think you could have you could go a little deeper rather than just like literally remaking this like they did with the 2010 narrative and like a mm-hmm. lesser a lesser version of it. You could 
really have fun with those characters of Freddie and Nancy, especially and what they represent. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I have no idea how to do it right off I mean, the top. There of my head. is <laughs> there is nightmare disorder, like that's an actual mm-hmm. thing where you have these lengthy, really story like sequences and these very hyper realistic like dream images, and there is a whole technique called lucid dreaming like as a mm-hmm. therapist like you can actually train clients that suffer from nightmares to exert more control over their dreams uh through lucid dreaming uh whether that be as simple as you realize you are in a dream and then you wake yourself up from it or to the extent where you do what you see in dream warriors and dream master, where you become kind of the master of that domain and you can train yourself to kind of embrace the dream logic. And it's kind of like being in the matrix mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty much do whatever you would like at that point to control it. And part of it is confronting the monster head on that is haunts your dreams and then like vanquishing that monster. Like pretty much what you see Nancy do here at the end of it, pulled right from loose, the idea of like lucid dreaming. Really? I just had this mental image of like from apocalypse now when he finds the guy in the hut Mm. and he's like the horror, the horror, but it's Mm. Nancy. And she's like every night has been battling with Freddy Mm. Krueger for like 30 years. Anyway, Mm -hmm. carry on. Well, and that's what I think is so fascinating about the fact that this happens in the dream world, because I could interpret the like dream world as like both the world I want to live in and the world I'm afraid I do live in. You know, this this is what I'm afraid of, but also what I want it to be. And I kind of as a, a woman in the patriarchy, lots of times I find myself kind of torn between which one I should operate as if I'm in, you know, like, should I be empowered right now? Um, or should I worry about the consequences of that? Because there's only it's like finding how much control you do have and confronting um, that monster, but also knowing that the monster is probably going to come back and I might not get rid of the monster forever, ever, like in my lifetime, you know, and I think the uh, the scene at the end, the I take back every bit of power I've ever given you like I think about that so much and Rebecca, like what you said about using it to kind of combat your own anxiety. I do that too. And I think like with some toxic people in my life, I've given them a lot of my energy, you know? And so I, I constantly think about how I, I I just have her in my back pocket. A lot of times I feel like I'm like, am I acting like Nancy would? But over the last couple of years, I've, I've kind of had to rethink this a little bit because I think there are times when I find that very empowering, but then I also was using that idea to think about how I respond to um, some political leaders or some people that have a lot of power. And the thing that I found about it is, for me, it's not enough to say I take back my power because if enough people are giving that person power, that person still does have power over me, you know? So I think... And I'm not to say that Nancy is wrong. Nancy is wrong in that moment, and that any time I've ever used that to find empowerment, that that was like empty. I'm just saying I found like it's helped me kind of refine how I think about giving my power because sometimes it's not enough just to take my power back. I have to actively work against. Like I've got to set the traps in my house too, you know. Totally. Which is what what we see her do, you know. Right. Right. I mean, sure. I think that there's a subtle difference between the, you know, like the emotional realm of giving someone power and the, and this is the the battle in life in general and, and the, the literal realm of like 
having to do the work. And Mm -hmm. if it's a political figure, folk, you know, actually choosing to tune in and Mm -hmm. fight, you know, and and take actions that are meaningful. But I still think, you know, you could get into a whole thing there with like setting boundaries and doom scrolling and, you Mm -hmm. know, being judicious about how and when you give those things your energy and when it is becoming something that's actually just like a vampire on your life. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting way to think about it. I don't really have any deeper thoughts there. I just think, I just think. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think everybody's going to find their own way to find empowerment, you know, mm-hmm. and everybody's the, the empowerment that everyone's looking for is going to be slightly different. So, and that's why I kind of love that. It's just simple. She's like, I don't have to give you my energy because I can interpret that in a million different ways, given my situation at the time, you know. And, and that's what I, I mean, this movie, when I said it's like a fairy tale, that's a, there, there's sort of these big shapes and big themes and you can really project a lot of your own stuff onto them and you can bring them into your own life in ways it's not so confining or such an explicit message that it keeps, that it keeps you out of it, but it's still yeah. so inventive and original and, and fully realized enough to stand on its own sans interpretation and just be a, a fun story. Yeah. I think that's really its power. I do too. And of course, I would never dream of projecting any of my own things onto a story. <laughs> Us, Jen, never. <laughs> I know. That's not what I do with every single movie I ever <laughs> On <watched>. this podcast? <laughs> um, well, and speaking of that, um, can, let's talk about the dream sequences and maybe kind of what they mean. Yeah, no, I just wanted to touch on, like, I mean, I, I call them dream sequences, but I guess it's like dream slash reality because it's like, which one is it? Um mm-hmm. I just feel like, you know, what the, the film does so well that the remake doesn't is that it deviates like beautifully between like the possibility of dreams and nightmares, mm-hmm. you know, so you know, if we're going to take the fact that there's a reality and, you know, a dream world well, within the dream world, there's also the possibility for nightmares as well. So I think the film like oscillates between those two things, those two states really interestingly you know, there's like a nice bleeding between them so that you never really are sure um, what state, uh, what world that you're in. Yes. And if they, they feel like incredibly recollective of my own dreams, like the surrealism. Mm-hmm. So things like, you know, Nancy's uh, feet going into the stairs. Like yeah. I've had dreams like that. And, you know, Freddie's arms being exaggerated. Um, you know, uh, the phone ringing where it's not plugged in, you know, these little touches, they're just like, they're beautiful touches. And they're so, as I say, they just really speak to me, like the truth of my own, like, you know, that sort of sense of the uncanny as well. Mm-hmm, that it's mm-hmm. like, it's familiar, but it's not as well. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, like the score, I think, like plays a big part in that as well, um, which like I'd maybe like to touch on a bit later. I also feel like, I don't know, there's a nice layering as well, like of the dream world and potentially reality. So, for example, like when Nancy's in the classroom, you've got her starting in the real world and then like bits of the nightmare come into the real world. So there's Mm -hmm. like nice layering as well that I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've never seen another movie so perfectly capture that blurred line when you're like half asleep and half awake and your dreams in real life are kind of bleeding into each other. I think that's what that I can't think about that classroom sequence 
without getting goosebumps and like it establishes a lot of things this movie does uh they establish tropes and cliches that you have then since seen 80 bazillion times but i think that this movie did it best and that classroom sequence is one of them like joking about the themes being reflective of the movie is something i've just it's almost like annoys me now when i see it but in that moment in 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 this movie i think especially because it is taking her from she's dozing off in class and that line the image of tina and the body bag like covered in blood underneath the plastic is there's something just so powerful about that and i feel like there are a couple movies that i feel like have really really imitated that like moments from that uh including the original like jew on the grudge and um hereditary with like People can't tell if you're asleep or awake and everybody's looking mm-hmm. at you like you're insane in class. I, I don't know. I, I I just agree. I think that this movie, and it's sort of like when I, I remember watching that scene for the first time and it like unlocked a door in my mind where I'm like, oh, horror can do this. It can play with something that, because I've always had a, like really, really vivid dreams and it's just something I've like laid awake thinking about or not, you know, wanting to do something with. And I'm like, this movie did something with it. <laughs> like, and it's so mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> no. Yeah. And a big part of that just comes from the fact that Raven only had a couple million dollars to make this movie, and that mm-hmm. was it. So you, as the series goes on, the dream sequences become much more elaborate, um, a lot more, you know, nightmarish, and you you get um, almost like a like a, da- a Salvador Dali esque like type of surrealism when you get to like part five, and yeah. in some ways, like those dream sequences aren't nearly as effective like they're visually gorgeous and i think part of the reason why elm street is my favorite series overall is because you have such creativity that goes into every single um entry like none of them phone it in yeah Mm -hmm. and here because craven has so little to work with he's almost forced to use the real world more but it's just so effective and i think this is why this one is the scariest of Mm -hmm. the bunch because it keeps the audience on its toes like you can't you know part of the pun but you can't really nod off during this movie because you're going to find yourself not knowing what's going on you're going to get lost very very quickly Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, the classroom dream sequence I love. And it's the simple moment of like when he, who I'm assuming is Invisible Freddy, lifts her feet up and drags her. And they could have just dragged her along the floor, but that act of lifting her feet up is so scary in the implication of what it is. And it's just, and it's heartbreaking too, because I imagine, like I like to think sometimes um, when we were talking about the stepfather, this is when I kind of came into focus. Like what if, none of this is sinister. What if this is just like, this is just a dream that she keeps having because she saw this horrific trauma, like her best friend is dead. And this Mm -hmm. is just something that keeps coming up in her mind. And I imagine that would be a way I would dismiss it. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not really a threat to me. This is just something I'm working through, which I think is fascinating. Um, And Tina's death is my favorite in horror. Like, I always kind of go back and forth about whether it's the bus in Final Destination or this one. But I love how creative this is. And just, like, the fact that her head hits Rod's head. Like, something about that. They're, like, in all of these. Or the fact that the the record player goes into the bed with Glenn. Like, something about it. It's, like, the stare, the tiny little details that make it so disturbing, but also, like, unique. And it's not, it's never 
super like like hacky, which I feel like yeah. it kind of gets down. And there's not really an irony to the killings. Like right. he happened to mention like, oh, I feel like I'm going to sink into my bed. I'm so tired. And then it happens, which I feel like kind of totally kind of lean into later yeah. on, you know? Yeah. If this was like the later, if these deaths happened in the later films, Freddie would be like, time to go to sleep forever, Glennie, you know, or something like that and pull him mm-hmm. into the bed, you know, but I, which, and I, I like MTV Freddie, but it's a different kind of enjoyment. Yeah. This, I think, I, I think it yeah. is so successful because it's so subtle and, and just follows dream logic without any kind of irony or tongue in cheek quality to it. Oh. It's just like fucked up. It's uh, tongue yeah. and phone. No yeah. T- it's tongue yeah. and phone. <laughs> <laughs> a big part of the reason Tina's, Death, I think, resonates so well with fans years later is Amanda Weiss is only in two scenes before mm-hmm. she's killed off as Tina. Yet in the two scenes that you have with her, there's a tremendous amount of character development. Like you get a very good feel for who each of these characters are, Rod, Glenn, Nancy, and even Tina, even if they're not on screen for a long time. So you get the opportunity to really feel mm-hmm. for them. You know, it's and they're not they're stock characters to a certain extent. I mean, like Tina is like a young woman with, you know, questionable parents who leave her on her own. She has very questionable taste in men. And like many of us at a young age, maybe don't always make the best decisions. (laughs) Listeners can't see me pointing to myself. Right, (laughs) But she's also um, she's also like a tremendously loyal friend. She has hopes Mm -hmm. and aspirations and you feel for her so much that when she goes, it's really shocking because Tina is being positioned as the heroine yes. of mm-hmm. the movie. Um, it's I mean, the psycho trick. Yeah. Yeah. So and it just and it does it and it does it so well. Yeah. I agree. And her death is so brutal. It's like you think you're gonna see her die in the dream and then she's just gonna be dead in the bed. And then suddenly it's like that the trick they did with the rotating room to make her look like she's being you know, thrown against the ceiling. Like, mm-hmm. again, when I was watching it with my friends who had never seen it before, who are watching this movie in the year of our Lord 2020, uh, are, we're like, oh, <laughs> shit, like this, oh, you know, like I could tell like they were caught off guard just by how brutal that killing is. And it's also the first death in the movie. So it really s- sets the tone for like what yeah. Freddie can do. And yeah. it's very violent, very brutal and very real, yet mm-hmm. surreal at the same time. Elm Street yeah. is the only series I know as well. Almost every movie actually has a funeral sequence. Like it's probably the only out mm. of like the big three Halloween, Elm Street and Friday the 13th. It's the only one that takes a moment to kind of really ponder like this is what's been lost. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. Scream doesn't even do that. No. Yeah. And I mean, partly it's because a lot of this happens like over the course of maybe a day or two. But yeah, it, and that's when I think it kind of goes into the the disposable kills things, you mm-hmm. know? And I do like that we see the toll that it takes because that's part of what a final girl is, is she has absorbed a bunch of trauma. Mm-hmm. And like, when you think about Tina's body, like she doesn't just fall on the bed dead and she's like posed, almost like artfully laying there for to be discovered. It's like she's dumped on the floor, like mm-hmm. kind of on her face. And it just feels so brutal you know Mm -hmm. that he would just throw that away but i like that we continue seeing her because the movie doesn't throw her away you know no i think another interesting theme you you touched on tina's parents and i think we i Mm -hmm. think you touched on this a little bit rebecca as well about not being able to sort of just being on your realizing that you're on your own and your parents aren't perfect i think all the parents in this movie i mean just down from the fact that it's like a sins of the father the vigilante justice of the parents who were 
trying to protect their children are what brings on this series of events. And then by the time that the children are being attacked, the parents are kind of MIA and, and useless. I, mm-hmm. I just think that's that was another theme that really resonated with me as a kid or like, a you know, young, young woman, I guess. Because I, you know, I was watching this around that tender age. There's, I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I just think it's one, it's one that is, it's pretty clear, clearly a theme in this film. Mm-hmm. But it just really resonated with me when I first saw it. Just that feeling of like, oh shit, I'm on my own. Yeah, yeah. Like just going back to like the deaths as well. I feel like it's like it's the spaces in which the deaths occur as well. To me, you know, the intimacy of these spaces, the, the you know, the bedrooms and like. Nancy's sort of attack you know you've got that moment when she's in the bathroom like that's an intimate private space that's invaded mm-hmm. by Freddie and I feel like actually like on my most recent watch when I was sort of preparing for this I felt really sorry for Rod because his is he you know his death happens in prison like he's he's alone we never see Rod's family so mm-hmm. he's really an outsider you know like he does okay, the parents are totally rubbish, but it's like we never yeah. see Rod's family. So I really, like, I hadn't noticed that before. So I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting. You know, I feel like Glenn's death affects me particularly, not because of Glenn, like, sorry, Glenn, <laughs> but, <laughs> but because I know the clock's ticking now and it's like there's only Nancy left. Mm-hmm. So she's in danger. Like, so mm-hmm. that really affects me. Um, and I also just wanted to touch quickly on Marge's death at Nancy's mum because Mm -hmm. I really feel like it's charged with emotion you know Nancy Mm -hmm. is patting the bed as in like my mum's gone where's she gone you know Mm -hmm. and that comes at a moment I think just after they've started to come to terms with one another and they're establishing this truth between each other and like a real meaningful connection and it's like there's a really sad scene where Nancy's almost it's like a role reversal where Nancy's becoming the caregiver mm-hmm. and Marge is the child, you know, when mm-hmm. she's in bed and like she's puts the bottle to one side. Yeah. And I think, yeah, their relationship is, is to me, right. It's the, it's the most genuine and the most interesting one in the film because I noticed that Glenn and, uh, Glenn and Nancy's dad, they both tell her at different points that they love her and she doesn't, she doesn't respond, mm-hmm. but she, she tells her mum that she loves her, like Nancy tells her mum, and her mum reciprocates that. So that's the only time we get the I love you and I love you back. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. I'd never noticed that that's the only reciprocated I love you, but I do think their their relationship is really, there is a real sadness to it because, you know, you see her mom is at least trying to protect yeah. Nancy, whereas like Lieutenant Daddy is kind of like, uh, whatever I you know they're they're all I mean really they're all trying in their own ways but I think that role reversal is something that happens to every child at some point in the relationship with their parent whether it's way too early or very late in life um it's just very it is there's something very sad about it yeah the line that really got me this time was in the dream sequence at the very end where his, her mom's like, and I had never noticed it. She's like, yeah, and I think I'm going to stop drinking. I just don't want to anymore. And I was like, that's probably what Nancy really wants. Like that's really inside her heart of yeah. hearts, what mm-hmm. she would dream for. And it just really, really struck me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Generational trauma is a theme that Craven returns to 
a lot in his work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His own background, he had a very difficult relationship with his dad, who I believe mm-hmm. like passed away at a very young age. And there's a lot of like, I think Craven has spoken like a lot of his early films. There's a lot of anger that comes out in his early work. Like Last House on the Left, he calls this anti-Vietnam movie. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a lot of anger that's directed at parents in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's an obvious trope in most horror movies, especially of this time, that the parents are absentee. They're just like not around at all. This one you see the parents in Elm Street are struggling with their guilt over the secret that they're kind of been burdened with and questioning, like, did we actually do the right thing? Like, we have to protect our children from this, you know, child killer slash child molester But in order to do that, like the system failed us and we had to take things into our own hands. And because Mm -hmm. of that, a lot of the anger is directed at their children. There's this kind of feel like, look what we had to do for you. Yes. The innocence of in ourselves that we had to sacrifice. And you can never know about this. And you Mm -hmm. see like um, Nancy's mother is extremely affected by this. Like she's now, you know, been turned to like alcoholism. Her marriage has fallen apart. Dad is basically very stoic and he's your tr- traditional masculine dude, like head down, going to do the work. And I'm just going to repress this as much as I can. Uh, even Tina's mom, like Tina's mom is an absentee mom because of all this. So the kids are paying now for the sins of their parents. Like basically mm-hmm. because of what Nancy's parents did, Nancy and her friends are there to pick up the pieces of it. That anger towards a parent's inability to protect the children is something Craven returns to a lot. Like Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, you see it in the Scream movies where Sydney's dad is basically absent. Like it's the anniversary of his wife's death and he's like, I have a road trip, see ya. Mm-hmm. He basically plays no role in the movie except to get kidnapped. And yeah, it's just something that yeah. you see a lot with Craven. Well, and the two parents I feel like that are probably maybe the most responsible are Glenn's parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but even like you could make the argument that they are hyper vigilant or they are too um, disapproving. No. Although, you know, I don't know. I might not want somebody calling my kids in the middle of the night, but still, yeah. They kind of represent the like 80s conservative, mm-hmm. like Reagan parents, uh-huh. you know. I think that's how I always saw them, yeah. that they were just kind of like dipshits. And, yeah. you know, I they just they just missed the point. You know, yeah. Dad is like fully dressed for work at eleven thirty at night with the, poly, <laughs> the polyester pants and like the short sleeve dress shirt. Like, yeah, he's he business like, dad. He is ready to go crunch numbers. Yeah. To be. Rebecca, you had talked about this a little bit in your introduction. Could you care to maybe espouse a little bit further about how Nancy and Glenn are kind of left to figure things out on their own because they can't rely on their parents any longer. I, so I don't think I've ever really thought about Glenn before because I more see that like Nancy's sort of directing both of them. Mm-hmm. So because I, f- I feel it very much Glenn lets her down. So mm-hmm. yeah. So I really think it's coming from Nancy rather mm-hmm. than Nancy and Glenn. I guess maybe maybe because the Nancy's parents have gone through a divorce. So Nancy's experienced divorce. She's got a bit more life experience. So you know, feels like Nancy's got a sh- bit of a sharper edge to her, whereas Glenn feels quite sort of like molly coddled by his mm-hmm. parents. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't really take it seriously because his parents have sheltered him so much that he just can't perceive a true threat. 
on some yeah. level. Mm-hmm. Which is, is a kind of privilege. And that's something that I've kind of learned with having my own kids is that there is only, I can only protect them so far. Like at some point they are going to get to the point where they're out in the world and it doesn't matter how hypervigilant I am. They can't live their own lives without like coming into, they can't ha- dream their own dreams to be cute about it without like there being some kind of danger, you know? Yeah. And Glenn's death, I I don't love Glenn either. Um, and his death had never really, uh, like, I don't know. It's just not one of my favorites, mm-hmm. but this time it really hit me hard. And I think a lot of it is because of his parents, because I think they think they're doing everything mm-hmm. right. And I don't think there was a way they really could have saved no. him. Um, but I just imagine they'll blame themselves, um, especially dad who took the phone off the hook. He's probably going to blame himself for that for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that this is what's left of their son, they need a mop to reclaim his right. body is just heartbreaking. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of played for comedy in the film, and I do on some level find it, I will never not find it funny, um, just <laughs> yeah. especially because it's like young John Depp, and uh, I call him John Depp. I love uh, that you're calling him John. I like yeah, I'm I just, adopt that. <laughs> that's just what I, I think it was like a Tim and Eric thing or something where they go like John Depp, yeah. and then it just got stuck in my head. <laughs> but it, it is played for comedy, and that whole sequence with like the cops like coming in, and then one of them comes outside and like pukes, you know, and like, you know, it's just, yeah. It's so ridiculous. But then if you really think about the impact that would have on two parents who are also like, we are in control, everything is fine and good, and there will be no problems. And then it's like, you're so literally just got blended. Like, it's yeah. fucked right. up. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's morbidly funny to me. But I can see also, like, if you actually, if this were to actually happen, like, that would completely devastate a pair of parents. Like, I mean, yeah. unimaginably. You have to move. Yeah. You know? You know, this show in particular, I think, often, and I've pointed it out before, falls into the trope that men are the worst. Um, and <laughs> well, I, we're just see, we're just watching and, the movies and talking and about I, it. Just call it as we see. And I often push back against that. Um, being, you know, I like to consider myself not always the worst. But I think in this case, like, Glenn is actually the worst. Like, He's the worst. Actually, <laughs> he is. Yeah. Just a dud. You, yeah, I mean, like, he's... He's so terrible. And I just love how, I don't know if it's a kink dynamic between Nancy and Glenn <laughs> that is unspoken where like Nancy is like, Glenn, you shit. And that's like <laughs> Glenn getting off on it. Like, I oh, love it when you say that to me, but he really is like, he's like, all I need you to do is stay awake for 15 minutes. Okay. And he immediately, and he does like the spooky arm thing at one point, like, dude, you're, friend is dead and you're just like Ooh. it's like i don't know that's yeah. why it's like it's sort of out of character for him on the bridge that he like has this really like no. deep insight that is the insight Lash. that leads nancy to be able to turn her back but i think yeah. it's just accidental he's like oh i read this fact once Glenn's <laughs> not reading eastern philosophy like glenn is not reading Anything, anything anything deeper than the back of like a trick cereal box where they <laughs> yeah. have like the jokes like <laughs> totally. that's the extent of glenn's reading yeah it's like the privilege of obliviousness you mm-hmm. know like i've never really had to face challenges like this so you know no. they're fine you know yeah it's the like 80s suburban sheltered idyllic white american experience oh, yeah. like yeah. Glenn yeah, I, embodies I, I, all of that. And his name is Glenn. No offense to mm-hmm. Glenn. No offense to any Glens out there except Glenn Danzig. I do mean to offend you. <laughs> Looking, do we have, 
we have no patrons named Glenn, so we're in the clear. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do. I do apologize. The in the world. <laughs> Except Glenn Danzig, I apologize to the rest of you. <laughs> Are we going to go a whole show with talking about a nightmare on Elm Street without actually talking about Freddy? Well, until you, you know, said maybe that, maybe we should talk about Freddy. <laughs> I guess we should talk about Freddy. <laughs> you know what? One, two, he's coming for you. So I yeah. think we need to. three, four. About our- oh. yeah, yeah. Okay. And so I was rest? thinking okay. maybe I've just been. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I'm kidding. No, no, no. You don't have to. Five <laughs> six is where I get stuck every time. Oh, it's the counting. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've just been listening to uh, You're Wrong About way too much, but I'm like, this is really, the the movie's a failure of the justice system, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. totally. <laughs> and it's yep. funny because positioning him as a victim of the parents, and I say victim in quotation marks, but like, it's it's interesting the way that his character is presented because he is a victim of vigilante justice because the system failed to get that justice in a healthy way. And it does create this ripple effect of secondary victims of his crimes. Totally. Which I think is interesting. And I, I do think it's interesting to talk about this idea. I believe uh, that this is not apocryphal, but I could be wrong that because it's been a minute um, but since I've thought about it. But Wes Craven did want to write him as a child molester. He did. Yes. Originally. And, you know, they kind of watered it down to just a plain old child murderer. murderer. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, and, and speaking of like political themes and things that were happening at the time, I mean, this was right in the heart of the satanic panic and this obsession with child molestation that really has never gone away to all the child sex trafficking pizza gate stuff today i think and mm-hmm. i think that it's it's like i think i said this on halloweenies according to my old notes but like i don't know that there's ever a time where child molestation will not be a hot button issue and it's something yeah. that i think they didn't want to approach in this film because it would have just been too too heavy mm-hmm. but i think that that theme is is there like the the threat of him not just as a murderer but as a like molester or like that taking away childhood innocence in a different way and it's there in these vestigial ways with like saying i'm your boyfriend now nancy and he's got kind of like and killing people in their bedrooms there's moments where he appears like on top of people kind of straddling them he is a very like weirdly sexual character in a very Mm -hmm. repulsive way and i don't really know where i'm going with this other than that, it's definitely a theme I've picked up on every time I watch this movie. You're just kind of like cross your legs a little bit. Um, yeah. But it's well, I, I don't. Yeah, go, go ahead. Well, and Rebecca, you mentioned like he kills them in these intimate places, you know, and I think there is nothing more intimate than your dreams and inside your head. And so I think it fits that like he would be like a child molester. That That's the same kind of like not paying attention to boundaries and really just kind of feeling at home wandering through people's personal lives and in intimate places, which is just terrifying. So I think that implication is there even without them really saying it. Mm-hmm. you know, in the movie. And as we'll see in the remake, although this is not the only flaw, I feel like it is handled poorly in the remake. And it does get very heavy in a way that I do not think is ever really fully explored because I think they they were like, oh, we're going to go for it without figuring out how to do it. You right. Know? Like, yeah. no, we're just going to go be hardcore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we listen to Slipknot. We know what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and there are some things that I liked about that that movie because there is because one of the differences in the remake is they and I don't know if this is ever implied. 
Well, I guess it can't be because if he were a child murderer who had murdered Nancy and Glenn, they wouldn't be alive anymore. But like it's implied in the remake that the the teenagers were his victims, you know, and so then like it kind of becomes a rape revenge movie in a way or at least adjacent to that subgenre. And it's just they just didn't know how to do it. There's a version of the script where Nancy has a sister that had been killed mm. by like it's, you know, prior to the events of the movie, like she was one of the victims of Kruger in the uh, remake. But this one is pure. The parents like find out that, you know, he's been killing the children. The judge got fat. The lawyer got famous. Mm-hmm. And then he just like enact mob rule at that point. I think what separates Freddie apart from every other killer in the 80s and every other icon is he has a personality. Yes. Not this complete blank slate. He talks. He Not only does he talk, but he cracks wise. Like, he takes this real sadistic pleasure in what he's doing. Like, it's his life's work. Even in his death, it's his life's work. Um, So there's a, a joy. You know, he's the guy that, you know, much like Glenn's dad is ready to go out there and crunch the numbers at any time. Like, he's dressed and ready to go. You know, Freddie is ready to, you know, terrorize a child and murder a kid at any at any moment because there's a pure sadistic glee in what he does. And Englund took this character very seriously. Like Robert Englund realized right away, like there's a lot of potential here. And Englund's like a very intelligent and, and he's like a classically trained actor, much like Bruce Campbell. Like Bruce Campbell is a classically trained actor. Like he could do more than just playing, you know, Ashley Williams in the Evil Dead series, much like mm-hmm. um, Robert Englund can. And he's put such a stamp on this character that you get like an Oscar nom, a, a, a actor like Jackie, uh, Jackie Earl Haley coming off an Oscar nomination for Little Children where he plays a child molester and he can't come close to fulfilling the role because England has just, it's impossible to envision anybody else playing this role because it's mm-hmm. his. not like Craven said, I don't just want a stunt man in a suit. The second movie, they tried to recast Freddie and they really? actually started to shoot it without England. Uh, if you look at the shower scene and like Freddie coming out through the mist, like that's actually a stunt person in a coming through um, the wild. shower sequence. And they realized very quickly this ain't working. So they brought England mm-hmm. back on and paid him, you know, more at that point. Um, this isn't like a Michael Myers or a Jason where yes, others, some have played it better than others, but by and large, like they're stunt persons in heavy costuming. Totally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think England completely character. Sorry, I'm about to cough. <laughs> There's also a bug flying around. So if you keep seeing mm-hmm. me doing this, um, <laughs> No, England really brought a physicality to this character that creates the character as much as the the written script did. Like the script could have been read very differently by another actor, but England brought this like just physicality to it. Like I, you know, if you watch that um, really long documentary or read the book on, I think it's called Never Sleep Again. Um, mm-hmm. He talks a little bit about the different ways he brought Freddie to life, um, and a lot of it was the costuming, like wearing this big, heavy prop glove on one hand made his shoulders go kind mm-hmm. of crooked. And he leaned into that literally like, and, and he also took, uh, took 
attack from old gangster movies and the way that he held his body. And he combined that with the, the sadism that he read into the character and the glee that he takes in killing um, and, and, and externalizing the pain uh, that he's in because of his, you know, burn wounds and all this. And it, it's just kind of one of those magic lightning in a bottle kind of moments where you take all those elements and it's more than the sum of their parts. And like, no one else can imitate that. You, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's all Robert England. And also he was younger. I think they wanted to cast, you know, they were planning to cast older. And so he's able to do all these things, but be very like agile. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's where you get them like jumping out at people and leaping, you know, a lot of the other slashers are these kind of slow moving, huge, but, slow presences whereas like Robert England it feels almost manic as Freddy mm-hmm. Krueger and it's really alarming um it's just a wonderful performance yeah yeah and I could go down like I've got a whole kind of mental thought log of like these killers and slashers like what do they represent about like the world and the patriarchy and I think one of the reasons I've kind of been drawn more to Michael and Jason is because they are these silent hulking figures that I can they're really like a blank slate to project a lot of things onto and I think um the I've been thinking more about Freddie and what he is and how he's so adaptive and just the way that like the system I feel like we're fighting against so much just kind of constantly shifts and changes depending on like what you do and how like that dream logic of like you can't ever really pin him down because he's not operating in the logic that you operate under which is frustrating and terrifying and I think the wisecrack and like there's there's um as much as I don't always love that like there's a a charm offensive too, you know, like if I can just distract you by being funny, you won't see how terrifying and how terrible I am and my, my uh, sinister implications or, um, you know, and I think also this is again, where the Simpsons I think has kind of tainted how I see this movie forever, because I think (laughs) of groundskeeper (laughs) Willie and I think how he was totally an innocent victim. And so I think I project a little bit of victimhood onto Freddie, which I think could be a larger, maybe a discussion for another day about how you can be a terrible human being and also a victim at the same time. And I think we, we see that a little bit with Jason, but it's really kind of in this movie really kind of, a central aspect of it, you know, the latter films definitely, I don't want to say they try to soften Freddie, but they add elements to his backstory, you know, with his mother being a nun mm-hmm. that was raped by a hundred, a hundred maniacs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. That's interesting. <laughs> I've aged myself there. Haven't I really? <laughs> they show in like Freddie's dad, like Alice Cooper plays his like stepfather that beats him. <laughs> you know, beats them repeatedly. Like they definitely, because they realized by the third movie, like people are coming to see Freddie. Like he is the James Bond. My daughter is fond of, like my daughter recorded a bunch of snippets on all the Elm Street movies with us when we did the franchise or part of the pendulum. And she calls it vacation, Freddie. Like <laughs> Freddie throwing on the shades, like kicking mm-hmm. back without a care mm-hmm. on the world. It's like vacation, Freddie. Um, Rebecca, you talked about, seeing this at a or seeing the third one at a tremendously young age and having to put on the Spice Girls movies, which is a whole other level of terrifying if you're me. I know that that really aged me a lot. What, like, oh, what, scary spice. What what were some of the specifics about this character that pulled you out of the movie, like made you want to turn it off, but also kept kind of having you 
edge your way back into it? Well, I think it was because I think, well, it's just key moments, really. I remember the moment where he's sort of huge and he's above and he's sort of puppeteering. Mm-hmm. That genuinely terrified me. I think because we watched it communally as well. Perhaps if I'd have watched it on my own, I wouldn't have. I mean, it just still scared the shit out of me. But I mean, like, perhaps, I, you know, I think when you're a part of a group, you know, you react together. Mm-hmm. That's definitely, yeah, definitely a factor, I think. Um, and it's just, obviously, we didn't get, we didn't, I think we must have got maybe 20 minutes in or something like that. And I feel like at that point, because I, I didn't have any other knowledge of, like, who Freddie was there was no context to it either so I think that was was quite that was definitely terrifying and knowing that these the the children in the you know in the film are vulnerable as well Mm -hmm. and I think I think like Freddie just felt very elusive Mm -hmm. to me watching that film and it's like there was a slight buzz that I got from it definitely if I can say that mm-hmm. and it's like mm-hmm. I remember like me playing those moments sort of over and over again mm-hmm. and they've stayed with me ever since you know what I mean they've really stayed like that particular moment where he's sort of I think he's just ripped out like the archeries of one of the yeah characters. it's like his ligaments that he's mm-hmm. using to puppeteer him and it's so gross it's pre- in my opinion it's like the most like I curl my toes and wince mm-hmm. uh, death sequence in any of the movies because it looks so painful the way he has his arms like splayed open. Yeah. Yeah. I have to leave the room. I can't watch it. Like it makes mm-hmm. me sick to my stomach. I've talked about my scar phobia, but a lot of it is veins and just body parts not being where they're supposed to be. And it's just like, oh. <laughs> I'm smiling because the central air has kicked on for the first time in our house. <laughs> Ah, oh, nice. Glorious. I thought you were smiling because of, of the veins and the arteries. And all that. I know. Like, oh. <laughs> well, speaking of sounds that come on, um, I know, Rebecca, you wanted to mention the score. Yeah, so I like, oh, gosh. I mean, this, this the score is like, for me, it's it's at least half the film, maybe more. Mm-hmm. It's so integral. Um, you know, it's as much a part of it as the aesthetics, the characters. And, you know, I mean, I'm not musically minded, so I don't know all the technical terms, sorry. But, <laughs> you know, in, in the main theme, there's like in the first couple of chords, there's just a note that's slightly off that I absolutely <laughs> love. I mean, yeah. oh, I love it. It's like gives me goosebumps, right? And like I see that as like it's it's subverting, the music subverting what you expect in the way that the film's going to subvert what you expect. That Like, that's the way mm-hmm. I read that. And it, like, it just draws me in and it keeps me on the edge of my seat. And it's, like, I'm, I'm going to say Ben Steen, but it's, it could be Ben Stein. It's Steen? Well, Stein? No, I'm not sure. I, I believe it's Bernstein. Steen, let's go with Steen. Frankenstein. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I never know. I never know. All the best ones are Steens, aren't they? so like I was uh watching some uh, interviews with um Bernstein and he was saying that his job he sees his job as like providing the emotional information to Mm -hmm. give the Mm -hmm. ears and the excitement which I thought was interesting and he'd said that early early on like Wes had showed him a black and white reel of just some ideas Mm -hmm. and it's like initial reaction was he didn't know if he was ever watching characters in the real world or in their dreams, which I mean speaks true to obviously the finished article because like he used that as like his framework to build the score, and mm-hmm. he, he also what I thought was great was that he talked about how 
he was convinced no one would see this film. Like, just, this film was going nowhere. Like, he talked, uh-huh. like, particularly when he was um, watching the scene where Nancy picks up the phone and the tongue comes out. And he was saying, once I saw that, I was just like, okay, this film <laughs> is just like, that's not happening. But importantly, what that led to is him feeling a sense of emboldenment. He was emboldened. Mm-hmm to take risks right because he thought this is going nowhere so i might as well be experimental so like mm-hmm. he, he he experimented with different sounds and textures that you would not normally have done and thank god mm-hmm. he did because you know it goes you know the score just goes hand in hand with everything for me it's a huge part of the experience of the film mm-hmm. absolutely i i love the score also and i think it really sets the atmosphere and that discordant note, it always reminds me of an out-of-tune music box, like a music box that's winding down, and which is sort of represents childhood and innocence. And it also sort of that that little that little phrase in the in the score kind of reflects the one, two, Freddy's coming for you, like childhood rhyme. You know, I feel like they're mm-hmm. kind of in dialogue with each other. I also have some old notes here that it was like they used an electric score because it was low budget. You know, get another thing where a constraint of the budget ends up becoming a strength because it became like the thing that every horror movie does until to to this day with like Stranger Things and God forbid I bring it up, Mandy. Um, you know, people are <laughs> imitating those kind of synth scores, you know, and, and obviously John Carpenter played a big role in that also. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just it's just funny to me how these happy accidents happen. Yeah. Well, and as a former children's choir director, I am a sucker for a creepy children's choir and a horror yep. movie. <laughs> and this one, I feel like it's one, it's fantastic, but I feel like it's one of the few times where it really informs the story because it's got this whole like urban legend um, element to it. And like, I wonder if they have, these kids have grown up hearing this rhyme and never knew what it meant and how it connected to them, which I think is, is like a string that you could keep pulling. And and so, yeah, it's just it's executed really well. And just how it lends into that creepy like dream quality, like so and me are like two of the earliest pitches that you learn. And it's it just feels smart in a very intuitive way. You know, like this is the right thing for this movie, you know, and I love what you're saying about how he emboldened it emboldened him to take risks and do what like maybe kind of not worry so much about what the studio would think and just what's right for this movie and what should this sound like right now? I love it. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Nancy as a final girl and how much I love her so much. And I know, Mike, you talk often about like the steps of uh, like if this movie didn't exist now, we wouldn't have this movie, which I always find so interesting. And I think Nancy is like a really crucial character in the trajectory of women on film, Um, because I think if she didn't exist in this in this film at this time, we wouldn't have Sydney and we wouldn't have these like later iterations of Laurie and uh, Sydney that we continue to see. And just a lot of the, the feminism that I see in horror right now. And I just love how proactive she is. And I feel like, I I don't want to say like, that's not a slight against Laurie in the original Halloween because she doesn't have an opportunity to do that. And it's not that she is a better or worse final girl in any way. It's just that this is this is a stepping stone that I, th- I find like it's really key. She's one of the first that really starts to turn and fight in a smart way, you know, using her own strengths rather than trying to take on the characteristics of Freddie, you know, which I just think is 
I love her. Also, I love that she's never sexualized. You know, yeah. it's fantastic. Like I watch her outfits I'm like that looks pretty comfortable. That's kind of cute. You know, like her big baggy pants. I'm like, yeah, ah. <laughs> thank God we don't get a shower scene like in the stepfather. <laughs> yeah. And we even get a bathtub scene like it would have been so easy for them. And I mean, yeah. you could make the argument that sticking the glove up in between her legs is sexualizing her, but it's never in an it's more an implication than objectifying her. Yeah. Her body, you know, which I love. And it's also a bit of a double-edged sword because it gets into the like morality play of 80s slasher films where the mm -hmm. virginal girl is the good one and the one who sleeps at the you know has sex at the beginning of the movie gets killed. Obviously, Wes Craven goes on to subvert these ideas and scream. Um, mm -hmm. so that's like my only issue with it. And you know, just like what is that? saying and it's my issue with a lot of the 80s slasher films um that like it's like one of those things where i watch this and i'm like don't think about it don't think about it or yeah, it'll ruin the experience for you and there was also this quote that like you know not to throw heather langenkamp under the bus here but i read some interview with her or i think it, it may have even been in that same documentary I, I don't remember but she says something where she's talking about how it's a feminist movie because of nancy's resourcefulness and bravery but then she says something like ultimately tina just wasn't a survivor yeah which really pissed me off because i was yeah. like just because nancy figures shit out doesn't make this tina's fault like tina is for starters is the first victim she has right. no heads up about the situation she's just the first to get targeted by freddie and like I don't like what that says about the idea of femininity only having like one valid form where like, unless mm -hmm. you're this like tough, resourceful virgin, yeah. like you're not, a, you're not a good woman, you know, I just, but I think that was also just Heather Langenkamp's sort of sophomoric interpretation of it. As much as I yeah. like Heather Langenkamp and as much as I love Nancy as a character, I just, that something that really bothered me. And I think it's a, it's something that's worth unpacking because it's the, the dark side of that, that trope of the good girl wins yeah yeah heather langkamp always plays nancy is like far older than she <laughs> mm -hmm. actually is i mean there's the line in the movie like god i looked 20 years old and i think she was like <laughs> 20 she might have been like 24 when she filmed this movie so that's kind of right funny. i think it's a little tongue in tongue <laughs> right. in phone um <laughs> but it's there's also like there's the moment where like you know they're staying at a friend's house there's no parental supervision and Glenn just goes in for a kiss. And she's like, Glenn, we're here for Tina. And like, meanwhile, Tina's already run into the bedroom with her boyfriend. Like, smell you guys later. Mm -hmm. You know, Glenn has the line, like, morality sucks. <laughs> so to me, like, and it's something I do not like about, like, the final girl. Like, Laurie Strode, like, was, you know, Laurie Strode, like, didn't hook up with anybody, but she wanted to. Like, she had a crush mm -hmm. on Ben Tramer. Like, she's like, smoking weed with with her buddy on the way like mm -hmm. and they like oh my god it's my dad so let's pull over because we're doing i have never understood that about halloween like just beep and wave guys just, yeah all right. <laughs> but like laurie strode wasn't like written as this like chaste character she just happened to like not have the opportunity that night so i don't yeah. know why that had to carry over to all these other movies like it just doesn't doesn't make any sense to me but like Nancy in particular is portrayed even in like part three when she's an adult, like she's maybe asexual, I would say, in like the portrayal of her. Mm -hmm. And I think there's nothing wrong with that no, on its surface. Wrong. I mean, it's just that it I don't know that it interrogates that idea. I think they're just kind of like going along with the trope yeah. a little bit. I think that 
I think Scream, the Scream franchise is absolute proof that Wes Craven went on to reflect on the trope and was like, yeah. let's let's unpack this a bit. And that and that series unpacks it fabulously. It's one place where I think this series as a franchise falls short. Well, it mm-hmm. reinforces this idea that like, you know, ladies, you have to protect your purity. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, which is, you know, that's not the most positive message to be sending. Yeah, one of the things that I love about the final girl trope is how I feel like it reveals society's idea of what women are and what should they be. And you can see that progress mm-hmm. as movies go. Like mm-hmm. like I said, Nancy is a step and Sydney is another step. Like she's really the first one that does not survive on her own. Like she, it's like it's okay to form relationships and use those relationships to help you. And again, not saying that anybody that came before her did anything wrong. It's the way they were written because the way we allowed ourselves to see women. And I feel like every time a final girl overpowers kind of this idea of what she should be. It gets us closer to what we're seeing now. Like Halloween 18 has its flaws, but there's a fucking matriarchy in that movie. And Mm -hmm. that is like, we're, we're moving closer. It's like, what dream world do we exist in? The one that we want or the one that we have. And every time a final girl breaks out of the one we have, it gets us closer to the one that we want. You know, Mm -hmm. I just want to see one of those evolution charts with like the monkey evolving into the upright, guy but it's final yeah. girls anyway that's i it. mean that might be a mission in my life to make that. <laughs> i would love that i think there's also a sadness to nancy and to really mm-hmm. most final girls yeah. it's really not until scream that you see a group of characters survive until the end like one of the very sad things about nancy and alice is actually my favorite final girl in the series Mm -hmm. part four and five like i think she's the best final girl in horror or at least really up there they at the end of the day like they're left alone like they couldn't save their friends Mm -hmm. so like nancy survives in the end but at what cost like her mother is gone she's essentially orphaned her boyfriend is gone her best friend is gone her best friends ruffian ne'er do well boyfriend is gone (laughs) as well um and alice in part four same thing like all of her support network there's like a real sadness like she's watching the video of all her friends and like they're all gone at that point so she Mm -hmm. survived but she's she wasn't able to protect others i think that's maybe why like in part three like when nancy comes back She's trying to help these kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the sort of accidental side effect of Final Girls is just unpack, you know, I think it provides a very unique opportunity to unpack trauma on mm-hmm. film um, in yep. a way that is like not about somebody in the military. It's just a different view into that kind of narrative. And I, I just have this on mind because I'm rereading Body Keeps the Score. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I still need to read that. I've been. I never like fully read it. I read like a good chunk of it. And then I was like too much right now. And now I'm like, I'm going to read this cover to cover. So it's just very fresh in my mind. (laughs) Was there anything else we want to mention about A Nightmare on Elm Street before we move on? No, I mean, there's so much I could like get into with all these little asides and all the fun stuff in here. It's like a big fucking (laughs) pile of ice cream with candy in it. But (laughs) that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I mean. I'll we'll be here all day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And now it's time for an uplifting moment. Hawk play. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> Cue the harp. <laughs> 
This is where we share any grounding or coping techniques and any self-care that have been particularly effective for us recently. Um, Grounding and coping techniques are the little tips, tricks, mantras, practices that help us get through the tough days um, and tough moments. And self-care is anything that makes us feel good or feel better. And I, I rewatched The Crown again, you know, got, <laughs> and now I'm on to a Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story. Oh, I read, I listened to the podcast about that. Yeah. It's yeah. Podcast. yeah. Something else. I'm, I haven't listened to the podcast yet. I've just been watching the Netflix one, but I kind of have had, like, I, I have this need to like keep up with what's going on in horror and watch like, and I got a, a screener that I want to watch, but then when I, when it comes down to it, I'm like, no, my brain just needs a rest. I just need to put on something <laughs> yeah. that I don't really have to think about. So I guess that's mine. Like today I, I usually go for a run in the morning. I was like, no, I just want to walk just kind of letting myself a little bit off the hook has been very refreshing, especially kind of coming down from a lot of stress of moving and just kind of a lot of change that I've been talking about. So, so that's mine. Anyone else care to share? Well, I'm doing the opposite of that (laughs) because our, our summit break, like by the time, by the time this episode is out, we'll be about a week into our summer break. Like the school year will be over. I have, two and a half days left and it has been it's been an awful year i mean for a lot of reasons but i have set some goals for the summer because i'm going to have a lot more time off and that's like how much reading i want to do with regards to like the practice i'm in um how much writing i want to do each day or how many days a week and just setting like uh how much professional development how many hours i want to get in but just setting like tangible goals like nothing that is too bananas that's going to allow me to kind of continue to like grow professionally but like looking forward to actually having the space to do it because I set a goal like I'd like to read like an hour a day anything on mental health you know four Mm -hmm. times a week but the reality is like there are nights where I'm like I am just gonna play this game on my iPhone until I can Mm -hmm. no longer keep my eyes open so I'm looking forward to like actually carving some real space out to do mm-hmm. those things this summer, especially writing some more. So, and I'm making them manageable. I'm not going to be like seven days a week, like, nope, like three, four days. A week. Yeah. Make it manageable. And, yeah. That's okay. Yeah. And that's that <laughs> ebb and flow, you know, because you yeah. can't go hard all the time and just mm-hmm. kind of giving yourself the space to do that, you know? Yeah. That's what she said. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, that was a well placed. That's what she said. I usually don't do them, but it was that is what perfect. Jen said. It was so deep. What... <laughs> so we... sounds like a game show. That's what she said. <laughs> that would be a good game show title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I like I regularly um, meditate and practice yoga, but what I've been finding that I'm slipping into now, which is really good, it's a good habit, is that. I'm not just routinely doing it, but it's like when I feel in a sticky situation, instead of doing something destructive, I'll go right mm-hmm. to that. And sort of the more I do it, you know, the easier, it beco- the more just instinctive it becomes mm-hmm. actually. And also like I, I do these things called, well, I think technically they're called challenges, right? But my brain does not like the word mm-hmm. challenge because <laughs> to me that it's like, oh, it's riddled with like, if I don't do it, then I fail mm-hmm. the challenge, yeah. right? So, it's <laughs> which is not good for me. So it's like, I've, I've brought one here, right? So it's like that 
it's like a jar that I make and I put in like little affirmations or tasks just like nice tasks Mm -hmm. you know and I'll pick one out a day and I'll you know it might be an Mm -hmm. affirmation or it might be something simple like buy it and like a a piece of fruit and like eat, eat that piece of fruit or it might be you know um go on a mindful walk or you know connect with someone or write a Mm self-compassion letter and those sorts of little moments actually really what I'm finding more and more to be honest is it's not the big things that help me it's the little Mm -hmm. the little things so those like little pauses are really Mm -hmm. good I love that I like the jar too you know with journals sometimes you're like ugh, not another journal entry today but I like the jar because it's kind of like surprise and delight element to it Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's great. My current self care is watching on repeat the new Megan the Stallion video for Tot Shit, mm. which has a wonderful tribute to Nightmare on Elm Street in it. You know, in a scene <laughs> with a man in a bathtub mm-hmm. and a hand that emerges. So I mm-hmm. highly encourage everyone to watch it a, ba- a bazillion times because it's a feminist, essential worker, working class anthem music video with like a really great message to it and it's also just so funny and so fun and it has a true like Cronenberg level body horror ending (laughs) it might be my favorite thing since the Lil Nas X Montero video so I'm just all I'm here for it watching it on repeat give me the confidence (laughs) in myself that my brain is incapable of generating thank you Megan nice I'm gonna have to check that one out well, we want to hear from you. What is your current self-care? Do you own any special gloves? Where is the weirdest place you've ever woken up? And do you ever make secret <laughs> coffee in your closet? <laughs> Which I love. She just opens up to her own little Starbucks. Um, and what is your grounding or, t- or just, you know, what else is on your mind? Uh, you can answer these questions and more by following us on socials at Psycho Pod. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group, which is a private and moderated space to share about things we talk about in the episodes or anything else that might be on your mind. And you can email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share privately. And if you have a spare moment, please leave us a rate and review on Apple iTunes. It really helps other people find the pod uh, and it makes us feel good, especially now since Apple's uh, update. I'm not going to go on a whole soapbox about the iTunes feed updates that hide episodes, but um, little bumps might help us out a lot. And yeah. thank you to those who have already left us reviews. It really, really means a lot to us. And our homework question for this week is, tell us about the scariest nightmare you have ever had that you remember, or what's the worst nightmare you've ever had? Tell Um, us about your dreams. Tell us your dreams, yes. Uh, So what's up next for us? Well, July is dawning, and with it, a new theme emerges from the ocean depths. Our theme for July is phobias, and we are going to be talking about a couple of different ones. We're going to do this a little bit differently, and we'll explain that in the episode. But our first episode, we are definitely going to need a bigger boat for. Uh, That's right. We're talking about the fear of open water as we see it in Jaws. So... Yay. Summer fun. <laughs> I know. Grab your anchor jackets or your jackets with tiny little anchors on them and join us. I'm excited. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we are a member of this. Stay tuned for lots more humor like that, too, in our Jaws episode. <laughs> nautical puns. 
Yes, yes, it's it's fun. Uh, we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us there along with some other great pods by going to consequence.net. And Rebecca, where can we find you online and what do you have coming up? So you can find Ghouls, where we have so much amazing content at www.ghoulsmagazine.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Ghouls Magazine, where I also have a monthly column called In Here Eyes, which looks at female characters in horror. And my first entry was actually Nancy Thompson. So nice. check that out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Pendle Pumpkin where you can find links to all my work, including a recent new series that I'm starting on women in Hitchcock's films Mm. that I'm writing for Moving Pictures Film Club. Just such a cool idea. I love it. That's awesome. Oh, it's like, I am so obsessed. It's deep. It's it's deep. (laughs) I love it. Mike, where can we find you? So you can find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum. Oh, anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, that is where I co-host with Lindsay Travis, where we feature different horror movie franchises. Every episode we cover, like right now we're covering The Conjuring. So I think our next show will be on Annabelle as we make our way through like the seven or eight movies through that franchise. Yeah. So anywhere you get your podcast, you can find The Pod of the Pendulum. You can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. And I've got like a bunch of like guest spots and stuff coming out, um, but I'll kind of promote those. Right now you can hear me on Certified Forgotten, where we cover the movie Sweatshop, which is a little slasher movie that I adore uh, that kind of opened me up to indie horror. So yeah, go ahead, find me at those places. And Laura, where can we find you? Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Underalls, it's U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S. Ugh. Much like the totally normal underpants that you're wearing, except you drop your pants and you look down and they're striped red and green. I don't remember this. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Freddy's in my pants. That's at Underalls. <laughs> no, you don't. A At Underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S on Twitter. And uh, occasionally on Halloweenies and the Losers Club podcasts as well. Yeah, and you were on quite a few of their Nightmare on Elm Street episodes, too, when they were coming. Yeah, if you want to go back to that season, I think I'm on the first one, Dream Warriors, and um, New Nightmare. So check them out. And you can find me at Jim Ferratu on socials. You can also find me on the Losers Club. We just recorded a massive episode on Lisey's story, the book, and we're going to um, uh, covering the television show also, which I am, have a lot of thoughts about. Um, and you can also find me writing the Strong Female Antagonist blog, which I think I'm going to try to put up my old blog on Final Girls, kind of what we've been talking about today. And I also occasionally write for Ghouls Magazine, and I've got a, a piece coming up. I've been teasing my thoughts about the Poughkeepsie tapes for a long time on this show, and my uh, essay that I wrote about it is coming out soon, so I'm really excited to share that. And it's just a fantastic site. I love like the the safe place that um, you and Zoe, Rebecca, are creating for people to share their experiences with horror. It's just it's a fantastic site, so make sure you check it out. Yeah, and that's our episode on A Nightmare on Elm Street. Thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca. This was so much fun. Thank you. Great to hang out. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Come back anytime. (laughs) Oh, bless you. 
And, and listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Please make sure to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're, we're all, all out of bubblegum. Bubblegum. <laughs> <laughs>